I'm not sure I've got much of my sermon left after Anna's video, to be fair. Um, but we'll do our best. I think I made this uh, silly promise not to, um, not to preach from Luke. Uh, so it's Acts, right? So it's kind of Luke part two, but um, you know, it is a different book, so I think I've got away with that one. Um, so turn with me now then to uh, Acts 13, uh, from verse 13. The Lord's word says this. From Paphos, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga in Pamphylia, where John left them to return to Jerusalem. From Perga, they went on to Pisidian Antioch. On the Sabbath, they entered the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the leaders of the synagogue sent word to them, saying, Brothers, if you have a word of exhortation for the people, please speak. Standing up, Paul motioned with his hand and said, Fellow Israelites and you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me. The God of the people of Israel chose our ancestors. He made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt. With mighty power, he led them out of that country. For about 40 years, he endured their conduct in the wilderness, and he overthrew seven nations in Canaan, giving their land to his people as their inheritance. All this took about 450 years. After this, God gave them judges until the time of Samuel the prophet. Then the people asked for a king, and he gave them Saul, son of Kish, of the tribe of Benjamin, who ruled for 40 years. After removing Saul, he made David their king. God testified concerning him. I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. So I thought, uh, well, okay, it's Acts. I've got just the book for this. I skipped over to my bookcase, pulled this from the shelf, and it goes to Acts 12. Rob, where, where's chapter 13? Where's the next volume? It's, uh, I have to start again. So uh, anyway, um, I'm going to still say, come along on Tuesday for, for the book launch, even though it's only up to 12. <laughs> so uh, when Nick and I were looking at topics, I said that I'd like to do the next few sermons on David. Not just the stories we know, Goliath and Bathsheba, but what was it about David that makes him who he is? We summed it up by saying there's just something about David and we thought that would be a good title for a little mini-series. We're not that creative in elders, to be fair. And today I wanted to explore the word used in verse 22. David was a man after my own heart. David was a man after God's own heart. What does this mean? What does it mean to be a man or a woman? I'm going to say man quite a lot in this sermon. You girls don't get away with it. When I say man, I mean all of you. What does it mean to be a man or a woman after God's own heart? But first, let's see what our reading from Acts can tell us. You should start to build a picture of me. I like to know what the scene is. I like to know what the build-up is to, to what we're going to be taking a look at. So let's start to have a look at what we've just read. Paul's on his first missionary journey. And for the first time, we read it's Paul and his companions. Uh, rather than a sort of joint leadership with Barnabas and Peter. It's Paul and his companions. They've just left Paphos, Cyprus, and have sailed to present-day south-central Turkey, ending up slightly inland in a place called Perga. John Mark then leaves them to return to Jerusalem. We're not sure why, but in Acts 15, Paul says that he deserted them. There's a story there somewhere. The remaining group then set off on an arduous hundred-mile journey further inland, 
through a bandit-ridden mountain range to a place called Pisidian Antioch, the Roman province of Galatia. And in a pattern he uh, repeats throughout his missionary journey, Paul goes first to the synagogue, where he knew that he would find Jews as well as some God-fearing Gentiles. Perhaps because the synagogue leader recognized um, Paul and Barnabas as rabbis, they ask if they have a word of exhortation for the people. And maybe underlining his growing leadership role, it's Paul that stands to speak. Now exhortation can mean to strongly encourage, or whether the synagogue leaders were expecting it or not, it can mean to persuade people. And I think it's this option that Paul takes. Paul stands and he motions with his hand for silence, and then he delivers his first synagogue sermon that we have in Acts. And in the first part of the sermon, kind of take a look again, Paul summarizes Israel's history, emphasizing God's sovereign role in choosing them, establishing them, and delivering them. Paul emphasizes that everything is at God's initiative. The God of the people of Israel chose our ancestors. He made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt. With mighty power, he led them out of that country. For about 40 years, he endured their conduct in the wilderness. And he overthrew seven nations in Canaan. God gave them judges until the time of Samuel the prophet. He gave them Saul, son of Kish. Paul's sermon to his fellow Jews appeals to them from scripture that they would know so, so well. And he moves quickly to God making David king. The sovereignty of God continues to be underlined. After removing Saul, he made David their king. Then Paul tells us that God testified that I have found uh, David, son of Jesse. Now finding surely implies seeking. There's a sense here that God has searched all the families of Israel to find a man fit for his purpose. A man after my own heart. Now, Paul must have been referring to what had been written in 1 Samuel 13, verse 13 to 14, because this is the only other time we hear this phrase regarding David. In fact, it's the only time it's used anywhere in the Bible. So turn with me now, if you can, to 1 Samuel 13, 13. I don't have the page number, so I'll give you a moment. So 1 Samuel 13, verse 13. And it says this, you have done a foolish thing, Samuel said. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and anointed him ruler of his people. Because you have not kept the Lord's command. Here, the prophet Samuel is chastising Saul for his disobedience. Picture the scene. Israel's persistent enemy, the Philistines, were threatening again. And Samuel had given instructions to Saul. Take your army to Gilgal. Wait for me there. And I will come and sacrifice some burnt offerings and tell you what to do next. But Saul's army were under attack and his men were deserting him. And Samuel was late. So Saul made the offering to God. Now, his offense may seem trivial to us, but the prophet Samuel spoke and acted on God's behalf. 
And Saul had ignored his instructions. He'd taken it upon himself to take the prophet's place. And he had decided that he would not be subject to Samuel, God's prophet, and did not consider himself to be bound by God's instructions. In verse 11, he even blamed Samuel for being late. He didn't recognize his error, and he didn't repent of it. And now God was going to remove him as king. Here again, we see the recognition of God's sovereignty. We've already read that he gave them Saul, son of Kish. Now the Lord has decided that Saul's kingdom will not endure. And the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. Again, there's this sense of the Lord searching for a man fit for his purpose. Someone the Lord can appoint as ruler of his people. Now, David's name hasn't been mentioned yet, but we know it's him by the time we get to Samuel chapter 16. David is this man after God's own heart. In our reading from Acts, Paul was directly referencing this event from 1 Samuel. A comparison his listeners in the synagogue would have understood without Paul even mentioning Saul's name. It seems to me when you read Acts 13 and 1 Samuel 13 together, that two themes seem to be emerging. The first theme seems to be about God's sovereignty. That comes through really strongly. Paul tells us that everything that has happened in Israel's history was under God's initiative. It was God who acted and brought things to be. From choosing their ancestors to bringing them out of Egypt and into Canaan, in time it was God who appointed Saul and it was God who took his kingdom away. And I think it's also about his sovereignty in choosing people to serve him. It was God who sought and found David and appointed him ruler of his people. But God not only chose him, God had a specific role in mind for him. And the second theme seems to be about the demand of obedience to God's will. In 1 Samuel we read that Saul's kingdom will not endure because you have not kept the Lord's command. And we read in Acts that God says about David in direct contrast to Saul that he will do everything I want him to do. David would desire and endeavor to do the will of God. However, we need to explore these themes a little more to see what they might uncover. What does a person after God's own heart look like? Well, to answer the question, maybe we need to look first at what it doesn't mean. At first reading, you may think to be after God's own heart means that you have to do things to make him notice you or to please him, or that somehow you can make God love you by being super good. But this isn't a phrase that's used about David in reference to his personal moral conduct, which we know was sometimes questionable. So why would it mean that for us? Paul tells us in chapter 2 of his letter to the Ephesians, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast, not by works. No, there's nothing we can do on our own merits. This isn't the answer. In the same way, it doesn't mean perfection. It doesn't mean that we never make a mistake. God could have used many words to describe David. David the shepherd warrior, David the great king, David the musician, or how about David the adulterer, David the murderer. But instead he says, David, a man after God's own heart. The author Chuck Swindle said, 
when God scans the earth for potential leaders, he's not on a search for angels in the flesh. He is certainly not looking for perfect people since there are none. He is searching for men and women like you and me. Mere people made up of flesh. But he's also looking for people who share the same qualities he found in David. God is looking for men and women after his own heart. But if it wasn't about the good things we do or about being perfect, then what does it mean to be a man after God's own heart? So let's get back to our themes. First, it seems to be about God's sovereignty in choosing people to serve him. It's God that searched and found you. Through all of humanity and all of time, he found you and me. How amazing is that? It's crazy to think about it. He knows what your strengths and weaknesses are. He knows your potential. And he knows your heart. And he knows exactly how he's going to use you. It's God that calls you into a relationship with him and into service of him. Ephesians 2 continues with verse 10. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. We are not saved through good works. We are created to do good works. Remember how David himself was anointed king. In 1 Samuel chapter 16, God said to Samuel, I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I've chosen one of his sons to be king. And when they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, surely this, Lord, this is the Lord's anointed, standing here before the Lord. He was the oldest son, and it seems he was handsome, strong and tall. I, I connect with that. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance uh, or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. One by one, seven sons were presented to Samuel. But the Lord hadn't chosen any of them. Are these all the sons you have, asked Samuel? There is still the youngest, Jesse answered, he's tending the sheep. There was an eighth son, but they thought it was so unlikely he would be chosen. They hadn't even invited him. But when David was presented to Samuel, the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. Now it's for us to pay attention to what God calls us to do. However big or small that seems to be, it may not be the ruler of a country. It's more likely that it's going to be the other things that people consider insignificant. When you look at David's life on the surface, there doesn't seem to have been much to impress God. He was just a young shepherd taking care of sheep in the village. But David was doing the job no one else wanted to do, and he did it well. Now it seems to me there are Christians who miss this today. We should be willing, for God's sake, to do the job no one else wants to do. Even if it's the least significant job out there, that no one else wants to do, that no one else considers important, we're told, 1 Peter 4.10 says this, Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others. And we're supposed particularly to serve our church and those in our church. Galatians 6.10 says, Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. 
we should have the same attitude that is spoken of in Colossians 3.23. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. A man after God's heart is willing to get his hands dirty and is willing to serve in whatever way they can. Secondly, to be a man after God's own heart means you must obey God and do his will. While obedience is um, certainly the right word to use, um, I think it can be a bit misleading. Um, when I hear the word obedience, I think of just following orders. Uh, I do that at home. Obedience, in this sense, is not wrong, but it can also be cold and lifeless and robotic. And I don't think this is what God means when he said to David we'll do, that David will do everything I want him to do. David obeyed God because he felt compelled to please God. David cared about the desires God has. His heart was after the things God's heart was after. David cared about what God cared about. David was obedient to the will of God. We read on the one hand that we have a Saul who disobeyed orders. And when your heart is far from God, your actions won't line up with the will of God. And on the other hand, we have a David. A David we know wasn't perfect. But God says, I have found David. A man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. David was willing to do everything for God. That's what a man after God's own heart is. A person who's willing to do what God wants them to do. Chuck Swindle again. What does it mean to be a person after God's own heart? It seems to me it means that you're a person whose life is in harmony with the Lord. What is important to him is important to you. What burdens him burdens you. When he says, go to the right, you go to the right. When he says, stop that in your life, you stop it. When he says, this is wrong and I want you to change, you come to terms with it because you have a heart for God. A man or a woman after God's own heart is a person that, if there is something, or if they read something in the word of God that uh, doesn't line up with their own life, they don't adjust the Bible they change and adjust themselves. He'll repent where he needs to repent and he'll adjust his life to that match that what God's will is. David was a man after God's heart because he had set his heart to obey God's will. But it's more than just duty. It's more than about obeying rules. It's about your heart. Jesus said in John 14, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. And Jesus also left us with what he called the first and greatest commandment. We can read it in Matthew 22. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. If we love God, we will obey him. We won't be perfect in our obedience, but our desire will be to submit to the Lord. I think there's a third thing that uh, it means to be a man after God's own heart, which is connected with obedience and doing God's will, and we've already mentioned it, and that's to repent when you fall short. While there are so many positives in the life of David, he was not without sin. He fell many times, sometimes in dramatic ways. So how was David considered a man after God's own heart, after so many shocking failures as a man? 
In Psalm 51, we find an answer. Dr. R.C. Sproul says, In the Psalms, we see the heart of a penitent unveiled. And in that, I think we see most clearly the greatness of David. If you read Psalm 51 and read it carefully and thoughtfully, that psalm will reveal more than anything else in the history of David about why David was called a man after God's own heart. Because here it reveals the broken heart of a sinful man who sees his sin clearly. While being a man after God's own heart is about obeying God, having the same desires as God's heart, and seeking to please God rather than people, a man after God's own heart also repents deeply when he knows he's failed. God knows no man will be perfect. To be a man after God's own heart, we don't need to be perfect. We need to be humble. And we need to be repentant when we sin. We need to be men who fully rely on God and his grace as we seek to follow his heart. We will fail often, but we need to get back up again and keep following our Lord as we depend solely on Jesus Christ and his gospel for the power we need. That's the way to be a man after God's own heart. Now turn with me back to Acts. So we're in... uh, Page 1108 now, I guess. From verse 23. From this man's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before the coming of Jesus, John preached repentance and baptism to all the people of Israel. So from David, Paul points, to, uh, points his listeners towards Jesus Christ. And we see a reference to John the Baptist, whose testimony about Jesus could be considered the start of the gospel story. Paul was using scripture to point towards Jesus, to persuade them of the truth of the gospel message. In verse 38, he says, Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin, a justification you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses. Jesus is our model of uh, servanthood and obedience and who we should look to if we're truly men and women after God's own heart. Jesus was the lowly servant. We've read about the shepherd from Bethlehem. Now we've got the carpenter from Nazareth. In Mark 10 we read, for even, the Son of Man, uh, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And in John 13, Jesus showed us that he was the greatest servant of all time. Now this story is uh, kind of familiar to everyone, I'm sure. When the disciples had booked the upper room for the Passover feast, they'd forgotten to secure the services of somebody to wash people's feet at the door. And this was their custom at the time. And interestingly, as the disciples realized the servant was missing, none of them volunteered for the job. Not one of them stepped forward to carry out this task. 
Instead, they argued over who was the greatest, who was the best. Not one of them stepped forward. When Jesus saw this, he decided to make an object lesson out of it. So after supper, Jesus stripped down to a garment around his waist, and he took a basin of water and a towel, and he began washing his disciples' feet. And Jesus said, Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. And Jesus was the only man who was perfectly obedient. His sole focus on earth was to obey his father because he loved his father. And we see this most clearly in Luke 22 as Jesus prepares for his death. Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. As with us, it's not about duty. It's not about following instructions. Jesus loved his father and would do anything for him. And one of the very first stories we read about Jesus in the Bible is in Luke chapter 2. Again, it's a familiar story. Jesus and his parents had been in Jerusalem for Passover. And when his parents set off for home, Jesus stayed behind without them realising. And as soon as they realised, they rushed back. And they went on a frantic search looking for him. And when they found him, they found him in the temple. And he said to them, why were you searching for me? Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? And they didn't understand what he was saying to them. Well, we're in a different position to them. And perhaps this is a significant lesson that everyone needs to learn. Jesus, the ultimate man after God's own heart, was all about his father's business. So where does that leave us? Are you using the gifts God has given to you to serve others? Or are you resisting his call to service? Are you serving your church and your church family as fully as you can? Or do you leave it to others? Is your heart aligned with the heart of God? Are you willing to change the things in your life that do not align with what God wants from you? Or do you find a way of reinterpreting things to fit your own agenda? And when you fall short, do you come to God with heartfelt sincerity to say sorry and to ask for his forgiveness? Now, perhaps you can consider these things in the coming days and ask yourself, am I a man or a woman after God's own heart? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the instruction. Thank you for the encouragement that it brings. And Lord, we come 
as humble servants, we come calling on you to, to say, Lord, we want to serve. We're here with the gifts and the bodies that you've given us. We want to serve you, Lord. Show us how you want us to serve. Because in this way, Lord, we give you glory. We celebrate the new life that you have given to us through Jesus Christ. We celebrate that by serving, Lord. And we, we serve in a worshipful, uh, thankful way. But Lord, show us how we can serve you. And Lord, teach us, guide us, keep us on the path, Lord, to obedience to your will. Now, you know, Lord, that we are not perfect. We're far, far, far from perfect. But Lord, we love you and we love your word and we love the fact that you have a place in our lives. Lord, guide us. Guide us, we pray. And Lord, when we fall short, we come to you. We come to you to say, we're sorry we let you down. Please forgive us. Thank you for sending your son who loved you so much that he was willing to pay the ultimate price. Thank you for sending your son so that he might take our frailties, our sin, our falling short to the cross with him. And we thank you, Lord, for Jesus Christ. Amen.